Let's talk about a brand new series. Yeah, it kicks off right now. We are kicking off a brand new series called Discovering the Kingdom. We're going to be walking through the book of 1 Corinthians line by line, kind of how we normally do that, and that's going to take us through the first 10 chapters of the book. And we called it Discovering the Kingdom because we're talking about the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, very simply, it is the reality where God is king and we are living in what he created and he is supreme. Now, you go, well, that sounds kind of fancy. All right, let's make it real practical. When Jesus Christ came here on earth, he said, behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. What that meant was a different reality is present. Like you think of it in one way as to your universe, something outside of your universe is now present. And Jesus demonstrated that in two different ways. One way was explaining that we treat other people different in the kingdom of God. So for example, the whole Sermon on the Mount, if you've ever read that out of Matthew chapter six, that's all about what is the kingdom reality like on a day-to-day basis? You have heard, he would say, that enemies are enemies and you're supposed to hate them. I say that's not how my reality works. In my reality, you love your enemies and you bless those who persecute you. He would say, you have heard, right, that you can do whatever you want, but the heart doesn't matter. I'm telling you, in my reality, the heart matters more than even the external. But then he began to demonstrate that not only is his reality a different philosophy or a different way of thinking, it's a literal different physical reality. And he explained this by they would go along and they see a leper. In our reality, you either find some way to be treated by a doctor or you're going to have leprosy for the rest of your life. Jesus said, that's not true in my reality. All of a sudden he heals him and there's a radical shift. And everyone said, that's not possible. He said, it is in my reality. My kingdom of God reality allows for signs, wonders, and miracles. In my kingdom reality, what you think is impossible is now possible. In my kingdom reality, the end of your rope is the beginning of my rope. Do you understand? So he was trying to explain, guys, when you're with me, and the Bible says that we are in partnership and fused together with Christ, you have now entered a whole different reality that you are walking in. That is the kingdom of God. So what we wanted to learn in this series is what does it practically look like to walk according to the kingdom of God, both in how we operate and how we treat one another. All these things are very important because the reason why is that we live in a world and a culture that is trying to shape us according to its values. We actually live according to kingdom values, right? Let me give you a couple of examples on what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Let me give you four quick ones. In the kingdom of God, God makes the rules of what's important and not, good and bad, right and wrong. That means the Bible is more important than the laws of the land. Now you go, well, what are you talking about? I'm talking about if there's a time when America begins to say, Christians are destructive. We no longer allow 
Christian church to occur, that would be the law of the land. We would say, I'm sorry, I follow scripture that supersedes that, so you're allowed to do whatever you want, but I have to follow my Lord. Does that make sense? That's a kingdom reality, all right? Here's another one. In the kingdom of God, supernatural is more real than natural, which means that not only are miracles possible, but the spiritual reality is our reality. Faith is our lifeblood. Prayer is how we alter things. In the world, people would say prayer is stupid because you're trying to talk to a God that's invisible and you can't hear him. And the Christian would say, in my reality, God is so personal, he's communicating to me, and I'm sharing my heart with him, and we're actually bonding during difficult times. That's a different reality. Third one, in the kingdom of God, all people are the same. Human beings should be humbled because they're all created by God, but feel noble because we're all created in the image of God. That means... If you're not God, you're not God, you're a person. And if you're a person, we're all in the boat together, right? There's no such thing as elitism, classism, race, superiority, there's none of that. That's all nonsense. According to scripture, there is God and his creation. Therefore, we're in it together. Does that make sense? Yep. I'm to give you one last one. In the kingdom of God, purity and goodness are the standard not wealth and fame. Very different standard, very different targets of what we're shooting for. All right, so if we truly believe that God wants us to live in the kingdom, what happens when the kingdom clashes with our cultural values? What are we supposed to do there? That's the challenge, right? And so the reason why we're choosing the book of 1 Corinthians is they know this even more than we know this. Because here's why. This church, by the time this letter was written, the church in Corinth was only four years old. So most believers in that church were not older than four years old in the Lord. They're all baby Christians, right? They had been born into a pagan, bizarre reality. And what do I mean by that? We're gonna learn a little bit about Corinth uh, this morning, but I'm just gonna share this. The city of Corinth, for a variety of reasons, was the epitome of a variety of influences, so much so that it was religious and, and I wouldn't even say religious, it was pagan religious, and it was all about wickedness and vice. So it was like a weird, creepy church and Vegas together. Does that make any sense? When they uncovered the city, there were 26 buildings dedicated to various deities. Everywhere you went, you were constantly bombarded with religiosity. And yet, because they were at a crossroads, all the Eastern mystic came in and all the Greek and Roman philosophy and Stoicism and their gods came in. So it was a mashup. And at the same time, they were a seaport. Therefore, all you had was travelers coming across and every seaport town, like Ephesus and Corinth, were really a bunch of travelers saying, I would like to sow my wild oats here, what do you got for me? And it was super wealthy and so it was all sorts of wickedness. So that's what they grew up in. Now all of a sudden they're Christians. What in the world does that mean? 
Now they're totally weird. Everyone's fine with weirdness unless it's Christian weirdness, right? Then all of a sudden, it's really bizarre. So they were struggling about who am I? If I grew up this way, Paul's telling me I'm something else. So what was Paul telling them? You are a citizen of heaven first and then a citizen of Corinth second. God should be your primary identity and then you are to be a good citizen where you live. Now, does that sound familiar today? The reason why this is so applicable is we're all in the same struggle. Lately, Christian nationalism or civic religion or American Christianity is permeating our society. And what is happening is, is people are merging Americanism and Christianity and it's distorting both sides. That is a serious problem. So what we would call you to do is the same thing Paul would call you to do. You are first a Christian, then you are an American. It doesn't mean that you're not a good citizen. You're called to be a good citizen. It doesn't mean you're not concerned about what's going on. You're supposed to be concerned about what's going on. But one is your identity and the other one you are working on. Does that make sense? So Paul is trying to say, hold up. We are not the same as our culture. We are different. And he's going to make that point really strongly. Let me give you a couple examples on how we're struggling with this in our own lives. Let's go back to politics. We will argue about politics in a nasty and vicious way because we believe that the ultimate goal is truth. Right? Well, what's right? I want to be right. I want to tell everyone what is wrong. The problem is the kingdom value of love has been moved aside to refocus on being right. You understand the problem with that? That means you are culturally driven, not kingdom driven. Because kingdom principles say if you slay another person to be right, you've lost. Does that make any sense? Meaning that everything, even Paul goes through this whole long series and said, even if you were brilliant, but you didn't have love, you've accomplished nothing. That is a kingdom principle clashing with a cultural principle. Let me give you another one. We don't want to go to church because it's inconvenient, right? So we'll do things like, oh, it's easier to do it online. And you go, well, hold on. The kingdom value says God's glory first, your convenience second. In other words, if God asks us to do a collective worship of his name where we are not just one voice singing, but we are a symphony of voices singing his praise, then it doesn't matter how inconvenient that is for you, you need to be there. Does that make sense? It's a different culture says shape everything around your lifestyle. This is what the kids do, this is what I do, this is what I'm into. How do I fit church into my life? That is not a kingdom principle. A kingdom principle says God takes center stage, everything else shapes around it. Does that make sense? And then let me give you uh, one more. We spend the majority of our time working hard so we can make more money to isolate. Now, let's, let's walk through this for a moment. Carpooling is miserable, right? Why do we hate carpooling? Because, dang it, that guy's always late. 
If I'm going to try to carpool with him and he's going to pick me up for work, I have no idea if he's on the same schedule that I'm on. And then, to be honest, his breath stinks. Right? Like, I don't even want to carpool with this dude. Like, I don't want to do this because it's inconvenient. You know what? I would love to have my own car because then I get to go where I want when I want to go there. And you know what would be awesome? If I had my own house. Like, even if I, even apartments, man, I walk out of my door and someone's walking there. I'm like, hey, I have to say hi to somebody and they're all super awkward. I would so much rather have my own place where I don't even have to deal with my neighbors, right? And if I had property, that would be awesome. I don't even have to see them. That would be sweet, right? And then I hate when people just drop by. If I could have a gate at the very front of my neighborhood, that would be so nice because then people aren't bugging me and they'd have to buzz in and I'm like, oh, I didn't even know you were at the gate. You don't understand what I'm saying? The whole purpose is convenience. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And then at the end, we find ourselves isolated and alone. You see, you can't have community without inconvenience. But in America, our cultural ideal is don't deal with inconvenience. Whatever you do, just do it your way, how you want it. I remember when Pastor Steve came out, one of the first few times he came out to America. Pastor Steve is the one that runs the Ugandan um, contingency of ministry. And he came out here for a visit, and I was trying to interview him. And I was like, Pastor Steve, what do you think of America? And he said... They just look lonely to me. He goes, during the day, you never run into anybody. I don't see anyone doing anything. They're all in their little holes. They all do their own little things, and there's no community here. It's an interesting perspective because in his world, where there's not a lot of money, you walk everywhere, you have to see everybody, you go to a common watering hole, everything is common, and it's really inconvenient. But they know each other and they're not alone. Just a powerful way to look at it, yeah? So we have cultural ideals and we have kingdom ideals and sometimes they clash. Wherever they clash, we need to be what's called countercultural. yeah? Does that make sense? All right, it doesn't. Okay, moving on. <laughs> we focus in this world on what we lack. Uh, God, this world is so hard. Like, it's already hard to be a Christian. It's already hard. You know what? My marriage is hard. Man, everything about my kids is difficult. And I'm just struggling. My, my job, I don't even like my job. And we are constantly looking at what we lack. But here's what's interesting. 2 Peter 1.3 says, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what it just said was, you have everything you need. We don't see that. We're always looking at what we're missing. But are we missing it in alignment with how God wants us to live? Or are we missing it in alignment with how we want to live? Because he said, we have everything we need. So either we're not using what he gave us, right? Or he didn't give it to us. I believe his word is right. Therefore, we have a problem of usage. Let me give you an example, and it's a, an analogy that I made up, and it's really weak. I'm just letting you know that in advance, right? You're like, wow, this guy's a terrible preacher. I'm acknowledging that right off the top. All right, 
Let's say, for example, I go camping. It's completely absurd, I understand. Uh, that is never gonna happen, but anyway, I don't understand why you camp. God gave us homes and hotels for a reason. I don't understand why you would go into nature. That's absurd. So anyway, let's say I go out into nature and I, my wife knows that I'm a wimp, so she doesn't know anything about camping either, but she then talks to somebody who does, and she says, hey, I packed you some stuff for your trip. So I got my little backpack on, and then I get in the car, and I drive out in the mountains, and I'm going to do the He-Man thing, and I'm going to go do it all by myself. So I go out into the wilderness, and I get out of my car. I'm walking around, talk, talking to myself. Oh, Lord, this is beautiful. I don't really think it's beautiful. I'm just saying that. And then... I decide later that night, I'm like, I gotta sleep somewhere. Well, it starts to rain and drizzle, and I'm like, oh man, maybe I gotta go under a tree. That would be, nope, it's still raining on me. And so eventually I get so disappointed, I just lay down and cry. This is really what would happen, side note. <laughs> it's raining on me, it's very, very sad. Then all of a sudden I hear this rooting around sound, and I'm like, oh my gosh, a bear. So a bear comes up, I'm running from the bear, I have to get back in my car, but here's the problem. As I'm trying to sleep in the car and wipe the tears from my eyes, I realize I had left the doors open when I was walking around, and now there's mosquitoes all over the inside. They're biting me all night, so I'm miserable. And I go back home in the morning, and I'm like, see, that's why I don't camp. My wife says, wait a second, what did you do? Well, it was miserable, blah, 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 blah. And she goes, why didn't you use the tent? I'm like, what's that? The tent, I loaded it in the car. Oh, well, that would have been helpful. Hmm, interesting. And as far as you were chased by a bear, did you use the bear spray I got from REI? Why would I spray a bear? What are you talking about? Yeah, it gets them away from you. Huh, that would have been helpful. Yeah, and you know what, by those bumps on your neck, clearly you didn't use the off spray that I put in your backpack. Wait, hold on, you put stuff in my backpack? Yeah, dude, that, you have to have items to go out into the wilderness. Huh. This is how God feels. God, I don't understand it, my marriage is miserable. Okay, are you living like me? Well, no. Okay, so then there's going to be a problem, there's gonna be a gap, right? Um, yeah, Lord, I'm so lonely. Are you engaged and involved in your church? No. Why would I do that? That's inconvenient. You know what? Everything's hard with my kid. Hold on. Are you praying over them daily? No. Okay, now your job's miserable. Do you have the perspective that you're actually working for me and ultimately what you do for a living doesn't really matter because it's all the same things. You're doing something with your hands and you're interacting with people. So who cares? Are you living out as salt and light? Well, no. Okay, no wonder everything's hard. You're not using any of the stuff I gave you. You are loaded with a pack of victory and you're not using any of it. You keep asking me for more, but I'm pretty sure I already gave it to you. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. We must remember what we've been given. We must remember what we've been given. If you're following the app, you can follow it in there as well. All right, so we are going to study what we've been given by opening up the book of 1 Corinthians. Can you go ahead and take out your Bible? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. It's page 952. 
in the ESV. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Drop your Bible open to the middle, go to the right. It'll be Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, boom, you're there, 1 Corinthians. Because anytime we open up a new book of the Bible, we have to study context, context, context. You do not get to just make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. You do not get to pick and pull and figure out your own theology. There was an intention by the author, and we have to dig down till we find out what he meant, then figure out how it applies to us, right? So I'm going to give you a bunch of background. So everything we read from here forward will have the context and to understand what it means. So Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians in 54 AD. Remember, the church is only four years old at this time. Paul is writing from Ephesus, which means if you know Turkey and Greece are real near each other, he's in modern-day Turkey writing across the water a letter to his church that he had started over in Greece. All right, pick it up in 1 Corinthians 1.1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. All right, if you are new to Christianity or new to the church or new to the Bible, Paul is one of our big dogs, right? Paul the apostle is perhaps the greatest evangelist that ever walked this planet. His ministry of church planning is extraordinary. And he was so anointed by God, he did things that were literally mind-blowing. Let me tell you, there's one verse that will freak you out. It says, Paul's aprons, because he was a tent maker, his aprons that he wore to keep from getting dirty, and his handkerchiefs he used were carried and were able to cast out demons and heal people. If you are so anointed that your laundry does more ministry than most churches, you're hardcore. Does that make sense? Like he's on a whole different level. This guy is absolutely amazing. Most of the theology that we base our Christianity on was laid out by one of the 13 books that Paul wrote in the New Testament. But he wasn't always a good guy. He was actually born Saul, of Tarsus, meaning he grew up in a town called Tarsus, which is actually in Turkey. As he grew up, he was a Jew of all Jews. He was hardcore Pharisee, Orthodox. He was so passionate that when he heard of this fledgling movement called Christianity that began to say the Messiah came, he's like, if the Messiah came, I would have known it. And you know what? Uh-uh, that guy ain't it. He said, it needs to be shut down now. He went into persecutor mode. He would throw Christian leaders in prison. He would make sure that they were killed and martyred for their faith. He was an anti-Christian man. And then one day he was on one of those trips and Jesus met him on the road, struck him blind and said, dude, you are on the wrong team. He was blinded until another man prayed for him and he miraculously received his sight and he had a radical transition and he became the Paul the Apostle we know today. This is the man writing this. Now, he could have said, hi, I'm Paul, you guys remember me, I'm a big deal. 
He could have said, I'm the one who's more gifted than your entire church. He could have said, the stuff I have seen in the heavens would blow your mind. But you know how he starts out? Guys, I'm here by the will of God. It was never my idea. I didn't choose this. God chose me. So this whole business about I want to exert my authority and I want to be a big deal, that's not true. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know anything about him until he came and he carried me. So I just got to tell you, am I an apostle? Yes. The Lord himself, the risen Lord, confirmed in me and commissioned me to go out. And yes, I am anointed in his name. So do I have an authority here? Yes, I do. But understand, it was never my idea. And I'm here with a buddy that you guys all know, Sosthenes. Now let's just pause. That dude, nobody knows who he is, yeah. right? And, and nobody cares, right? This poor guy is like, hello, in the background. And then everyone's like, whatever, move on. There's one other dude in the Bible with that name in Acts 18. He was not a Christian at the time. So this means that this synagogue ruler would have got saved and now he's in Paul's team and all that. But is it the same guy? We don't know. Once again, everybody seems to be named the same thing in the Bible, so who knows, right? We don't know who this guy is. Nobody cares. Move on. Verse 2. Poor little guy. Everyone's like, oh, that's sad. He got in the Bible. Come on. My name's not in there. Nobody's named Lance in the Bible. Come on. Let's... I'm not feeling bad for that guy. He got a mention. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 1-2. He was writing to, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is both their Lord and ours. All right, let's talk about this for a moment. He's writing out to Corinth. Corinth has a crazy history. They were one of the mega cities of the Greek empire, and everything was going swimmingly until the Roman Empire took over. They crushed the city and left it dormant for a hundred years. Now, they then rebuilt it in AD, uh, AD 44 as a Roman colony under Julius Caesar, and it began to thrive again. But here's why Corinth is a big deal. If you look on a map of Greece, it's really two big landmasses almost touching but they have a little baby land bridge. That's where Corinth is. They're the gateway from one side to the next and from one body of water to the next. That means anyone coming from Asia had to go through them or all the way around. Anyone coming from Rome had to go through them or all the way around, and it was cheaper to go through. So they were at the crossroads of all international travel. So when it got re-kicked up in AD 44, the Romans said, let's let all of our freed slaves go there. That meant everyone coming in was poor. But when you're poor and you're in a perfect position and you make tons of money, it's called new money. And that is where everything exploded. And they started having everyone from around the world come into their city, pouring dollars in. That allowed them to be extremely wealthy, extremely influential, and bombarded by every possible philosophy in the entire world. This is a key place on the planet. 
And Paul said, to the church of God in Corinth. You go, yeah, he just said the Corinthian church. Hold up, he actually didn't. This is very important when you find out what this letter is saying. Here's what he's saying. It is God's church that happens to be in Corinth. It's not your church. See, here's one of the problems we make today. Well, Bridgeway, I'm the senior pastor of Bridgeway. It's my church. Hold up, no it's not. Never was, never will be. It's God's church that happens to be in Roseville. And the reason why that's different is that leadership's goal is never to try to think up cool ideas to figure out how to make a better country club. Every Christian leadership in a church, their primary job is to discern the voice of God and put it into play. What does the king want? That's your only job, right? So our job is much more discernment than it is coming up with beautiful strategy. Does that make sense? This is God's house. And the reason why that's important is it's not primarily about us. It's primarily about the worship of the king. Therefore, everything that occurs here has to be checked in with the Father. That's how we operate, all right? Now, this was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey with Silas, and here's how it went. We do not have all the letters of Corinthians. You're like, but this one says first. It's the first one we found. It's not the first one that was written. So here's how it went. Paul sets up baby church, goes on his travels, finds out there's problems immediately, writes them a letter. Guys, you're way off base. You're not even tracking on what I told you. You guys need to clean it up. They then sent a letter back. It was delivered by Stephanus and his friends, and some people from Chloe's household come along. They're like, Paul, they brought you this letter. Take a look at it. Man, those people are not cool with you as a leader. They have all kinds of questions for you. They have all kinds of complaints for you, and they're challenging your leadership. And I'm here to tell you, I go to that church. It is a weird place. Like, there is something wrong with these people. I don't know what is going on right now. And Paul's going, okay. This is not going well. And he wrote 1 Corinthians back. Now, the sad part about it is after 1 Corinthians, still doesn't go well. It says Paul had to make a painful visit. That means he came in and tore everybody apart and was like, who do you think you are? When he leaves, it falls apart again. And he has to make a threat to go, listen, I'm going to send you 2 Corinthians, and if you don't clean it up, I'm coming back in with another painful visit. You guys, what we're about to read is a full letter of tension between a church rebelling against their founding pastor and him trying to tell them what God's will is. This whole letter is kind of around bad blood and trying to solve problems. So when you go in and you read it and you're like, oh, I wonder why that's what he was talking about. There's a whole history that goes in behind it. All right, but here's how he describes the Corinthian people. What he should have said is, dear pain in my, that's actually what he should have said, but he didn't. He said, to the believers sanctified in Christ Jesus. You know what the word sanctified means in Greek? 
It's the word holy, right? So what did he say? To you who were made holy by Christ Jesus, meaning he transformed you in such a way that you are now able to be used in God's most special purposes. Then he further describes them, you are called to be saints. You know what saints is in Greek? The same word, holy. So what he just said was, you have been made holy and you're called to be holy. That's a lot of talking about holy. Why would he keep saying that? Because he knows their primary problem is they're being influenced by culture more than being separate for God. He's gonna keep pointing out, what does holy mean? Holy means distinct for God. You're special for God. You're not like everybody else. You're not like the rest of your culture. You are his precious possession. So he'll keep highlighting that issue. All right, then he said, and you are together with all the Christians worldwide. Why does he point that out? Because one of the number one problems Corinth had was they believed that they were the only church. They were the most important. They were the biggest and baddest. They were the most anointed. They had the most gifting, and they were very into elitism. And they were thinking, I don't need anybody else. Did you know churches still fall into this problem? And so what did Paul say? Dude, it is not all about you. There are so many churches out there. There are so many ways that God is moving out there. No, you're not the king of the pile. You're a house of God along with a bunch of houses of God. If you wanna talk about God moving in a powerful way, let's talk about South Korea. Let's talk about China. Let's talk about somewhere else because you are not the center of the universe. This whole idea that you're like, my church is better, my church is better, stop. You mean God's church that you're managing. That's all you should say. Cool, you're not better than everybody else. So he drops that bomb and then he gives this definition of Christians which I wish was the definition of Christians. It would allow us to do more unity movement than I'm really passionate about in our region. Here's how he defines Christians. Those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Well, are they Republican? I'm sorry, what'd you say? Are they Democrat? No, they're those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means he's their savior, He's their leader. He's their God. That's it. I know, but what do they feel about creationism? I don't know. They're the ones that call on Jesus because he's their everything. That's what a Christian is. I know, I get that. I get that. But how do they vote? Don't care. Do they put their whole focus on Jesus and call him their king? Okay, cool. That's a Christian. All right, moving on. Let's not complicate it, right? Keep moving forward. Verse three. He gives a standard greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what's cool about that. Talk about humbling. Guys, may a blessing of grace be upon you because you've never earned anything. It was all God or nothing. Everything you have is a gift. I need you to remember that. And if you ultimately let that soak in, you know what it's gonna create in you? Shalom peace. That's really the gift of God. If you don't have peace in your heart, well, you need to figure out what grace means. 
because one leads to the other, yeah? Then we get to the heart of the entire matter. I give thanks to my God always for you, which is nice to say when he's in tension with him, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. All right. Did you see it? That was the message. He just laid out nine things that is the Corinthians' identity in Jesus Christ, and it's ours today. Did you track on it? Okay, you need to have a piece of paper. I need you to write these down. Here are nine things, nine gifts at least, that God has given us that says, not only is this who you are, but this is what I put in your pack. This is what I gave you for victory. This is what I gave you for strength. This is what I gave you for hope. I have front-loaded you to be successful in my eyes on this planet. So whatever you're going to face, I've already prepared you for. That's amazing, yeah? Let's write these down. All right, here's what they had and what I'm going to suggest you have because we all have the same spirit. Yep. All right, here we go. Number one, write this down. Supernaturally blessed speech. Supernaturally blessed speech speech. And here's what I mean. Do you realize that if you have the Holy Spirit, then what comes out of your mouth is not just words? You're like, well, yeah, it kind of is. No, it's kind of not. Here's why. The Bible consistently says, be careful on what you say. You have the power to raise up or tear people down. You have the power to infuse them with hope or with despair. Be very careful what you say because you are speaking on behalf of heaven. You are not speaking your own opinion. You don't get to go mouth off and talk about just only things that you want. You are a Christian. You have been bought by Jesus Christ. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What comes out of your mouth is supernatural. As a matter of fact, you are likely operating in the prophetic, speaking for God, and you don't even know it. Because the Lord has things he wants to communicate, and you are the channel by which he's going to communicate that. Not only practically do you have the gospel that you could say out of your mouth, someone would hear it and transform from death to life, but you even have the power to speak blessing over someone. When we pray over someone, it is coming through the channel of our mouth communicating the reality of heaven, kingdom living right here in this place and speaking it over someone else. That is supernatural speech. Stuff coming out of your mouth, the Holy Spirit is controlling. And you go, no, 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 I just have really good ideas. No, you don't. You have a really good God. And he's saying stuff through you that can literally rise someone out of a pit. Just know you're not merely human. You are supernatural. Okay, let's go to number two. Supernaturally blessed knowledge. Supernaturally blessed 
knowledge. You know stuff that the world does not know. You're going to read the Bible and stuff's going to illuminate off the page to you and you don't even know why. Why do you keep reading a story and go, wow, that's weird, I never saw that before. It was always there. The Holy Spirit just illuminated it to you. Do you understand that God is downloading stuff into your spirit and your head on a continual basis? You are having thoughts imparted from heaven to you. You're like, well, I wish I really had that gift. No, you're a Christian. That means it's already operating, whether or not you're tracking on it, whether or not you're honing it, whether or not you're building it, that's on you. But it's happening. You have the Holy Spirit who's constantly communicating with the Father, and it says the Holy Spirit will reveal everything Jesus wanted to say to us. So he's constantly communicating to you. You're like, man, I have waited for an hour in a silent room, and he's not saying anything. Because he's talking from the inside out. You guys, this whole idea of getting downloads from God and people praying over you and they say stuff and you didn't even know that they knew that, and they didn't, it's not them. It's the Holy Spirit. And he's revealing things to his children that nobody else gets. That's personal, and you have that. Number three, confirmation from Christ. Confirmation from Christ. There are a bunch of us that throughout our lives we have always worried whether or not we're one of his kids. And we doubt it all the time. God, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He said, hold on, let's pause for a moment. Look at the evidence. What's going on around you? Not only did I save you, but do you understand I'm consistently talking with you? I'm consistently ministering through you. Do you understand how much I've surrounded you? I am giving you affirmation every day. You're mine. You're okay, kiddo. Number four, write down full gifting. Full gifting. Now, he's talking collectively to the whole Corinthian church, and he says, when you guys all get together, every gift that is necessary is represented here. What he's not saying is everybody has every gift all the time. And that's why when we're alone, our spiritual gift doesn't make as much sense. It only makes sense in a group. So here's what he's saying. Guys, I have loaded your church with so many gifts that whatever you face, the answer is probably present in your team. But you're not getting together very much. You don't know each other. So you're out there struggling all by yourself. You're not utilizing the community that I gave you. And as a matter of fact, even if your church doesn't have someone with that gift stepping up, it's kind of why you need to partner with other churches because someone in their church is going to have that gift that you can utilize. But here's the part that matters to you. If the church is fully gifted, that means every single person in it has something to bring to the table. You do not observe church. You are the church. You do not come and attend church. You engage with church. That's the point. You all are gifted. Well, I don't have a title. Who cares about titles? Titles don't make you more holy. They just show organizational structure. Why in the world would someone wait in a line to pray with me when you have another believer standing right next to you? You think they're drawing different juice than I am? I'm pulling from the same source. There's only one source. It's God. And if I'm pulling from it, that means you're pulling from it. So what's the difference between you and me? 
You're a jar of clay, I'm a jar of clay. Sweet, how about we do this together? The bottom line is, you have something to contribute. There is no one unnecessary in the church. Well, I don't think my gift is very, well, God certainly does. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gave it to you and he certainly wouldn't have had you come to this church. Does that make sense? Everybody's got something. Number five, we have a returning savior and king. A returning savior and king. You know the end of the story. We win. Bad guy loses. That's it. At no point is a Christian ever to look to the future and see despair. It doesn't theologically make any sense. Because if you're not taken care of and healed in this life, the short life, you're going to be restored in the next. Meaning you're going to transfer into help. You're going to transfer into glory. So every Christian must always have a positive outlook of the future because our king is waiting to take us home. That's the future of you, right? Let's move forward. Number six, the sustaining power of Christ. The sustaining power of Christ. Here's what he said. Jesus Christ is not just the author of your faith. He is not just the sustainer of your faith. He is the finisher of your faith. He's already got you to the end in his heart glorified. He knows how to get his kiddos home. Who's responsible for getting the sheep home? The shepherd. And if the shepherd's good at his job, all the sheep are getting home. It doesn't rely on the sheep. The sheep are a little distracted. The sheep don't have navigation system. Does that make sense? But the shepherd does. So you're going to consistently go, man, I don't know if I can handle this Christianity thing. Like I'm kind of flaky in my personality. I'm kind of in, I'm out, I'm going to up and I'm down. Praise the Lord, it's not on you. Yeah, if it's on you, you should be nervous. It's not on you. If you're a child of God, he knows how to get you home. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I'll get you there. I didn't prepare it for nothing, right? Number seven, guiltlessness. Just write that word down, that's a gift. Guiltlessness, it says when Jesus returns, you will stand guiltless before him. Now this is a radical word because here's what most of us can get to. We can, as far as we can reach, we can go this far. Wow, I'm a loser, which I'll agree with. Wow, I'm a loser and I'm a super bad sinner and I got all kinds of mean stuff that I've done to other people and wickedness that I've done, but I have been saved by Jesus so I am a saved sinner. So when I stand before him, he's going to look at me and go, oh, wow, that's rough. You know what? I love you anyway. That's about as far as we go. Do you understand what this word means in Greek? Unblameable. It's not wow, you're really messed up, it's good I saved you, it's when I died, I paid it all, and nothing can stick to you now. You are so purified, there's not even an accusation against you. I don't know if you can get there in your head, but that's a radical reality, that when Jesus Christ stands, there's not a humiliation there's a, oh, hey, kiddo, come on, let's go. Well, aren't you concerned about what I, what you what? Yeah, I, I took care of that. Yeah, we switched lives. You guys remember that? Okay, cool, we're good. That's different. Write this down, number eight, faithfulness from God. Faithfulness from God. 
What God says he's going to do, he's going to do. That's it. We're not used to that. We're around flakes all our life. God's solid. If he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. He's really good at his job. Number nine, invitation to relationship and partnership. Invitation to relationship and partnership. The word there is koinonia. It means we hang out together close and we do stuff together. That's what God has invited you to. So you have a creator in heaven that's saying, not only do I want to be super close buddies and you're my kiddo, but I actually want to do stuff together. I invited you to be part of me and my team. All right. These are our new identity. We used to be lost, we're now found. We were blind, now we see. We used to be in the kingdom of darkness, now we're in the kingdom of light. We used to be an enemy of God, we are now called friends. We used to be filled with and responsible for our sin. We are now free, forgiven, and living in a state of grace. We have been saved, cleansed, and called children of God. Why does Paul lay that all out in the first few verses? Because he's about to walk into correction. He's about to blow their minds and go, guys, you're not living right. So why does he start with identity? Because the only reason he's correcting them is it's not who they are. We always think that God is saying, try harder. He's not. What he's saying is, I built you for more. After everything I've given you, the way that you're living doesn't really make sense to me. Knock it off. Well, God, I'm having a really hard time forgiving that person. He goes, why? Well, because of what they did. You saw what they did to me. And he's like, oh, that's right. However, are you telling me that I don't understand forgiveness? Are you telling me that when I, the king of all creation, was hung naked on a cross, embarrassed and humiliated, tortured, and actually the father had to forsake me so that I would die for your sins, you're telling me that wasn't hard? Okay, what I'm telling you is, after all the grace, after all the forgiveness, after all the love that I keep lavishing on you, you should have more than enough to spill out on an idiot and a monster. You see, any command in the Bible to change means that not only is it possible, he's already prepared you for it. There's nothing in the Bible that he's going to demand that you do that he's not going to help you do it. We look like, oh, why are you so hard on me? No, he's calling you to accountability because he's overloaded you with the ability to do it. And he's telling you to use what you have. So I told you that the goal of every teacher that comes up here during the year of discovery is to bring out something mind-blowing to you that you might love God more. Here's your reality and your revelation for today. Everything that I just said, you already have. I don't know what you're waiting for. Most of us spend our Christian lives waiting. Man, I cannot wait until I can have like a, a ministry where it could be like I'm talking like on God's behalf and I'm blessing people. Hold up, you already got it in your pack. You're just not using it. Well, I can't wait till this time when I can pray for people to be healed. In your pack, already gave it to you. Well, I, cannot, I can't wait for a time when I feel intimate with the Lord and I feel like my prayer times are rich and full. Already in your pack. Well, I can't wait for this time when I can, I can actually get out of the bondage of all the addiction I'm in. In your pack. Do you understand what I'm saying? We keep waiting. What are you waiting for? 
Is there more? Yeah, we're a kingdom of now, but not yet. But really, we're only talking about some special details. Everything you need for life and godliness here is already bought for you on the cross. You're literally walking and not using everything he gave you for victory. So here's the truth. Every true revelation demands a change. I got two things I need you to do because of what you just learned. Number one, be encouraged. You have so much more than you ever dreamed. What you've been waiting for and dreaming of, God already preloaded. It's just a matter of living into it. And number two, challenge, use what you got. That's it. Use what you got. I, I'm gonna, every time I talk in this church about that there's more, I'm talking about more because you discovered he's given you more. I'm not telling you that you have to wait 20 years to get more. I'm telling you that he wants to move in your life right now, and he prepared it before you were born. I'm gonna close us in prayer, and I just, I just hope that there's an inspiration in your spirit that you have everything you need for life and godliness, yeah? Let's go. Can I have the prayer team come on up here as we close in prayer? If you need prayer, this is what the whole point is. Let them chase after heaven with you and for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We give you glory that this is your church, always has been, always will be. And Lord, we pray right now that we would align with you because Jesus, what you bought for us, what you prepared for us, Holy Spirit, what your presence means is over our head, but it's all waiting for us. I just pray, Lord, that we would start living into it. We would start honing the gifts we've been given, that we would start walking in them, engaging with you, having that fun journey of discovery with you, being able to see your hand work right in front of our face, understanding that our prayers alter reality because you said so. God, I just pray that every believer here would know they are part of the church. We are not watching from the sidelines. We are in the game. God, would you allow us to grow in what you've already built? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.